stories to you. Uh, my name is Russell Blackford. I'm a philosopher based at University of Newcastle here in Australia. Um, my guest today is A.C. Grayling, the author of his latest book, which we'll be talking about, The Frontiers of Knowledge, subtitled What We Now Know About Science, History and the Mind. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which uh, I live and work, uh, the Awabakal and Waramai peoples, and I pay respect to their elders past and present. Welcome uh, to Aboriginal people who are listening to this conversation. My guest again is A.C. Grayling, author of The Frontiers of Knowledge, um, A.C. Grayling is Professor Anthony Grayling, who is the Master of the New College of the Humanities in London. He's the author of numerous books. And while Anthony would not want to say this about himself, I will say about him that he is one of the most important philosophers in the world uh, today. Uh, he's a, a man of great, great influence, uh, great culture, and um, he's going to give us a, a lot of his learning tonight, or I believe it's still morning his time, uh, in respect of the frontiers of knowledge, uh, the new book, which comes from Penguin Random House uh, and co-published by Viking. Anthony, I'd, I'd like to start by homing in on the subtitle of the book. The subtitle is What We Now Know, about science, history, and the mind. Those are three huge subjects, science, history, and the mind. It could almost be about everything. But when you talk about science, you cover a lot of territory there, but you really hone in on the current state of cutting edge, of cutting edge physics. You, know, you talk about uh, the state of, of particle physics, with the whole menagerie of the subatomic particles that we now have most recently, perhaps the Higgs boson. You talk about quantum theory. Uh, you talk about uh, Einsteinian relativity theory and the, the kinds of problems that arise with interpreting quantum theory and reconciling quantum theory with relativity theory. I don't want to steal too much of your thunder, but can you tell us yeah, a little bit about yeah, science as you conceive it and you know, the, the, this cutting edge of science that you're talking about in the book. Well, perhaps the most remarkable thing about the developments that we've seen in physics and cosmology is uh, applications, uh, especially fundamental physics, provided us with an extraordinary um, access of, of uh, management, really, of parts of nature the way we're communicating at this very moment, of course, arises out of our understanding of the microstructure of, of matter. Right. So this has been fantastic. And of course, it's played into our understanding of history out of the mind as well, because these physics uh, developments have allowed us to use ground radar to, to do uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain. So, you know, the, these scientific advances are extraordinary. A really important point about them, the thing that's most surprising or should be most surprising to people is that with these enormous developments of understanding and their powerful applications via technology, what we've learned from them is that we have access to a bit less 
than 5% of what constitutes the mass density of the universe. 95%, more than 95% of what makes up the universe is hidden from us in the form of dark matter and dark energy. And so the, the paradox here is that as our knowledge has increased, so has the domain of our ignorance of, our, of what we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's a very exciting and a very consequential thing because it tells us quite a lot about the nature of inquiry and about what therefore we should be doing as, as people thinking about inquiry, how we inquire, how we educate. That's the thing of the whole book, isn't it? it? It arises with history as well, and it arises with, with the mind. When you talk about history, your, your focus is on history before the sort of continuous reliable written records that we have, which go back to about, what, 500 um, before the Common Era, I guess, something like that, going back to Hellenic Greece and perhaps a similar sort of time in China and so on. But you're going back before that era to history before that time and to you know, the real prehistory and the evolution of humanity. Could you tell us a little bit about that and about the, you know, the problems that arise with studying that era of or those eras of history? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me that, that uh, our, as you say, our sort of assured continuous sense of, of history as such really goes back to the, the period, just a, just a few centuries before classical antiquity, really. So you could, at a stretch, you could say, takes us back to about 1000 BC, right. let's, let's say, okay. Right. Um, but, but even that was pretty vague because it's in Herodotus, it's in uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Mm. They're sort of rather vaguely specified. Everything after what, what's sometimes called the Bronze Age collapse, which is now dated to about 1200 BCE. But with archaeology beginning mainly in the second half of the 19th century, middle second half of the 19th century, another 3,000 years of history of civilization came into view, doubling our reach back through time. And then, of course, with archaeology, with fossils, big unearthed, uh, showing us something about the ancestry of uh, Homo sapiens. That history is extended back, not just hundreds of thousands of years, but perhaps all the way back, now that we have genetic knowledge as well, to six million years ago, mm. when the uh, remotest ancestors of the hominin line diverged from chimpanzees. So th this uh, is, is an extraordinary um, you know, efflorescence of, of view as we look back across the landscapes of the past. It's, it really is extraordinary. But it brings into view, again, another whole range of problems about inquiry. Just to give you one, one example, every time archaeologists dig up a settlement, which is several thousand years old or older than, than classical antiquity, they make assumptions about what they find. The biggest building in the settlement, they always think of as a temple or a palace. Yep. And th this, in my view, is, is a case of, of, you know, reading in. Why? Well, because in the periods of history that we're familiar with, like, uh, you know, medieval times and Renaissance and so on, all the biggest structures were cathedrals and palaces. So they assumed that the biggest structures in the past were cathedrals and palaces. But I asked the question, if um, there's some civilizational collapse now, and in several hundred years time, archaeologists dig up uh, sports stadiums and gymnasiums and uh, libraries and universities, what will they make of them? Well, it will depend what they're interested in then, because if they were a highly militaristic culture, they would think these were all barracks. Or if they were a highly, you know, fitness focused culture, they would think all these big buildings were gymnasia, you know, 
and, and reading in distorts history. So we have to challenge ourselves and think very carefully about how we do that, not least because there is a, a serious and interesting and important uh, question about how we make sense of history, how we interpret it correctly without yielding to temptations to be denialists or, or the wrong kind of revisionist about history. You know, I've got in mind here Holocaust denial mm, and that kind yeah. of thing. We need, we need to try to be incredibly responsible to the, uh, the, to the facts as we find them and to the kinds of in, techniques of inquiry that we can apply. That is again a theme through the, the whole book, as it seemed to me, that you don't want to be some kind of sceptic or some sort of relativist about truth. But at the same time, you want to acknowledge the difficulties that arise. At one point, you list... You know, 12 difficulties that can you know, be barriers or challenges in finding the truth. You know, the, the, the pinhole that we look through, you know, look through this very small pinhole to a very big universe that we try to make sense of, the reading in, you know, the, the premature closure that we might seek and so on. Could, I can't remember all 12 of them, but I guess you probably can. But can you tell us a little bit more about those barriers? We'll come back to the mind in a minute, but can you tell us more generally about those sorts of barriers or challenges to inquiry? Yes. So, so we, we have to bear in mind, I mean, you, you put very well there what, what I call the pinhole problem, which is that you know, we've got this vast universe and the whole scale of things from the very, very smallest uh, units that we can think of, the Planck units, you know, the Planck length, Planck time and so on, and then the size of the universe itself. And the question that one has to ask about that is, is this, is this, how big the universe is and how small it is, or is this just a function of how far we can reach so far? You know, could, could it be that the small is even smaller and the big is even bigger? Could there be many universes and so on? So, you know, we're at a very, very restricted, very finite, limited uh, scale from which to try to reach out and understand these things. So that's the pinhole problem. But then we've got a number of other problems. So we've got the metaphor problem. You know, we use metaphors to try to make sense mm. of what we're dealing with. In, in uh, the early modern period, there's clockwork, you know, the universe was clockwork. Um, then when um, Sputnik went up into space, Von Daniken thought the gods were astronauts. You know, we, we're always grasping it. And now we think of the mind as a computer. You know, is this, ah. is this metaphor helping us or is it misleading us? Mm. Is it a heuristic which we can abandon when we have a clear understanding? Then we have what, what I call the Ptolemy problem. So Ptolemy, as you know, came up with a, a picture of the universe in which the uh, Earth is at the center. And you can use this geocentric model very successfully to navigate the oceans, predict eclipses, and so on. So it works for a certain range. Hmm. Of and, it, and it dominated till the mid, what, mid 16th century, something like that. In That's fact, right. it continued Copernicus. to dominate even after it was challenged by Copernicus. That's right. Indeed, it did. And so there's a perfectly good example of how something can work, again, across a limited range, admittedly, but the, the fact that it works doesn't show that it's true. So you, you can you know, think of some of the applications of contemporary science. You can see that they work, but are they working? You know, have we got the right reasons why they're mm. working? Mm. And th th this is a function of, of a couple of, of, I think, familiar problems. You know, if your tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If your tool is maths, everything looks mathematical. Uh, you know, you, you look for the lost keys at night under the lamp, the street lamp, because that's the only place you can see. So 
looking at the fossil record of human evolution, you can only look in places where you're likely to, to be able to see fossils, like the Rift Valley in, in East Africa. And there's what I call the Parmenides problem, which should be familiar to philosophers, the reduction of everything to one. And that, that might seem to be a, a kind of intellectual desire, even perhaps an intellectual prejudice to try to get to the most simple, uh, unitary kind of explanation. And just looking at it from that mm. point of view, it might seem to be a sort of naive thing, but actually it's a driving force in fundamental science to try to reduce the number of forces in the universe, to try to come to the single simplest, if it's not one thing, then at least one kind of thing. Okay, so I refer to the whole menagerie of the subatomic particles earlier. Yes, yes, yes exactly. Yeah. But, but I mean, there is this push out by this particular menagerie. Isn't there something simpler that might underlie the whole lot? That's the, that's the sort of thing that the Greek philosopher Parmenides might have thought. Yeah, exactly. So the, the string theory is a candidate for that, isn't it? And, and perhaps something even more fundamental than strings, maybe just quantum fluctuations, you know, so, but, but, but something. Of course, as a heuristic, it's, it's a very good aim. But it's also uh, interesting to raise the question, why might there not be 17 and a half fundamental things or 39 and three quarters? Or, you know, I mean, any other. But of course, there are good motivations for thinking that it's not like that. Past science has always shown us that for, for, uh, developments have included and reached further than uh, what was understood before. So Einstein's relativity, for example, includes Newton, but goes beyond it. Uh, what, what David Deutsch called reach, and, and that's a good, a good criterion for successful science is reach. So that happens, but still we've got to raise the question, um, are we right to be reductionist in this kind of way? And finally, you mentioned the closure problem. The thing about human beings is we love a story. We like a beginning, a middle, and an end. We like a narrative. We like an explanation. And we like the explanation to be tied up and signed off. Everything's neat and finished. So we're always in a hurry to jump to conclusions. And I think the closure problem uh, is present big time in the sciences of the brain and mind at the moment. Because if you think about it, I mean, a real skeptic about what's happening in brain science would say, and I don't agree with this myself, <laughs> but this is what a real skeptic would say, is that magnetic resonance imaging and the other kinds of brain scanning techniques there are, are a kind of extremely high tech and very expensive version of phrenology. Remember, phrenology was looking at the bumps on the hmm. skull. This is looking at the bumps on the brain because it's very high level structures when you consider there are 86 billion neurons in the brain, we're not really getting way down to where it's all actually happening. We're just looking at these very large structures like the temporal lobes and the occipital region and the amygdala and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So, so, you know, that, that, that's the, uh, the risk that the closure problem presents, that we're jumping to conclusions, even though some of those conclusions are already proving themselves to be clinically fantastically useful for trying to understand brain disease, brain injury, and, and how we might deal with them. So, so that's fantastic. But that could also, of course, be a feature of the Ptolemy problem, that we've got something that works, but we haven't quite actually got the real reason why it does yet. So all these, these uh, are challenges um, that we need to address and think about. And the beautiful thing about the sciences, all the sciences, including history, in its scientific aspect anyway, is that the people who do it are fully conscious of these things. But you know, Russell, well, well, one of the things that for, for 
folks like us who've studied theory of knowledge and, and uh, know all about the arguments against the skeptic in the past, is that what these, these challenges show us is that skepticism is, is not the, the problem in the sense that it shows us that we don't know. On the contrary, skepticism is the helper which shows us how we can come to know. Because these, but by, by illustrating what kinds of difficulties we meet with when we inquire, it, it helps us to identify what challenges have to be met so that we can be most responsible in our inquiries. As long as it's the right type of scepticism, I suppose. You were talking about the, you know, the, the sort of Holocaust denier or, or the climate change denier. Those people would claim to be sceptics of a certain kind, but they're sceptics, I guess, about ideas that shake their view of the world. If they're sceptic about ideas that they really don't want to be true, because if, you know, if um, climate change is really happening, as you and I know it is, that has all sorts of political ramifications for you know, the regulation of fossil fuel industries, for trying to phase out coal. Uh, regulation generally, in a way that is going to cut across you know, the worldview and the values of a lot of people who, who are actually very committed. And that sort of sceptic might be very resistant to the truth. So it has yeah. to be the right kind of scepticism, I, I, I guess I'd want to say. Oh yes, you, you're you're absolutely right about that. And um, one of the the problems that that we face, um, not just in thinking about the uh, nature of knowledge and inquiry, but in public policy matters, as you've just uh, alluded to them, is that people come along wearing the the fig leaves of of responsible inquiry, uh, and and they come saying we've got to ask these questions, we've got to be, we've got to challenge ourselves as to whether we're doing the right thing here. Uh, and this is why it's so key, really, to think about what we, we human beings, um, need to do with the situation we're in epistemologically. So if, if we look across these great discoveries that have been made so recently in science and history and the mind, we need to be literate about them. This is a, a really key point for, for me, the idea of literacy. Mm -hmm. you, you can have expertise in, in one or two areas, but, but that, the fact that you're an expert in one area should not stop you from trying to be responsibly literate across the range. Really have an intelligent understanding, even if you're not a physicist, but know something about what's going on in physics. There are wonderful, you know, uh, front uh, coalface physicists who can write beautifully about their work for a general readership. So there's no excuse not to know about these things. You know, there's Paul Davies and Lawrence Krauss and uh, uh, John Gribben. I mean, there are all sorts of people who can really let us know what's happening there. And we should be informed about it so that we can take part when we vote, when we discuss, when we have conversations in society about what we do, so we can be responsible contributors to that conversation. So literacy is a really important thing. And that in its turn tells us something about education. <clears throat> you know, in the past, we used to, have, and I'm now thinking 19th century and before, oh. we used to give people a general education, a sort of general literacy. We equipped them with the, 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 the kind of intelligent approach to things. You remember T.S. Eliot, the poet, said there's only one method, and that is be intelligent. Okay? <laughs> so a, a general education equips people to, to approach things intelligently. And then you go on afterwards and you specialize and you, you, know, you kind of become a lawyer or you become a doctor or whatever it might be. 
in some way, the framework of, of education in the US is still a bit like that. Liberal arts, undergraduates, and then graduate school for law and, and, uh, and well, whatever. Unfortunately, that model is under threat there because they're trying to reduce the amount of time people spend in higher education, it's so expensive. And also because they're bringing specialization more in, into the undergraduate level than before. And so we've seen a flip in the UK and I think probably in Australia as well. People start to specialize after the age of 16. You know, you do GCSEs in the UK and then you do two or three subjects for A level and then one subject at university. So instead of being generally educated, you are specially educated in some field that you choose. And it's left up to you afterwards to become generally educated, to become literate. And of course, most people are busy with careers and families and, you know, and therefore they don't do it. Now I remember the- have converted on this one, Anthony. Now, it's a very, I mean, it's a very prominent thing here in Australia that, you know, the government wants graduates who are, are ready for the workplace and so on. Yeah, that uh, there's a, as I see it, a great pressure on universities to turn themselves very much into institutions for training uh, and not so much institutions for the kind of general education uh, that, that you're talking about. You know, I, I, I see things about this here in Australia every day. So it's probably all over the Western world, if not beyond that. I'm afraid so. And of course, it's exacerbating the problem that was identified by C.P. Snow back in 1959, the two cultures divide. You remember he argued then that uh, uh, the gulf between people who know about science and people who know about the arts and humanities is widening and widening. And people who know about the arts and humanities are the kind of people who become politicians and civil servants. And their lack of real understanding of science is a problem. Well, that gap is just widened further in the last 70 years, you know, since he, since he, he argued about this. Uh, and, and it's a, a, a real difficulty here because we are now in a very science and technology dominated age. Let me give you two very, very quick examples of why all of us should be informed. One is hundreds of billions of dollars are being invested every year by the major military nations, the US, China, Russia, France, UK, in autonomous weapon systems, weapon systems which are operated and governed by AI, not by people. Uh, and, and this is, you know, this is, this is in a very, very, very advanced state already. And it raises serious questions about the future nature of conflict and about what happens when things go wrong, who's accountable, can AI systems uh, align with humanitarian laws of war like proportionality and uh, discrimination and so on. You know, these are really, really serious well, issues. Are we to blame if they do the wrong thing? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the whole, the whole development of AI, you know, forget about AGI, about artificial general intelligence, because when that happens, game over anyway. <laughs> but, but, you know, even with AI at the moment, uh, there are big questions to be asked. So we need to be literate about it. And the other thing is brain technology. I mean, it is already the case, already the case that brain chip interfaces are at work. So there are some people who are quadriplegics, for example, who have a, a, a chip, it's at the experimental level, admittedly, but it's happening. And they can use the thought to control um, a computer so they can write on, on a screen like that. So, so brain chip interfaces are coming. They will have great benefits controlling Parkinson's, epilepsy, um, mood control for people who 
deeply and you know suicidally depressed people who are maybe getting rid of really stressful uh, traumatic memories you know very powerful clinical applications but you can see immediately what the malign implications of that might be well if you reverse it we're in trouble exactly. if you reverse it yeah sure so you know but, but but just thinking about controlling people's moods and thoughts and implanting mm memories as well as getting rid of them. So, you know, we need to, we need to know what's happening because this is not science fiction. This is science fact. It's, it's happening now. We've got to be informed. We've got to be literate. We've got to be good participants in the social conversation about these things. You're listening to the Newcastle Writers Festival's Stories to You podcast series. And my name is Russell Blackford. I'm speaking with Professor Anthony Grayling, AC Grayling, about his most recent book, The Frontier's of knowledge. Uh, Anthony, you're a great supporter of um, the humanities for all the reasons that you were just talking about. Uh, I get the feeling that the humanities in particular are under threat. And I, I would take it that the new college of the humanities, where you're the, the master, the, the vice chancellor in effect, uh, you know, as our audience would understand, you know, the heads of institutions in Australia, that would be meant, I would assume, as a partial corrective to the ability of the institutions you know, to provide you know, good humanities education as widely as you and I would like to see you know, in the face of all those you know, pressures from governments and elsewhere that we've been talking about. Could you tell us a little bit about that whole, that whole project about the new College of the Humanities? Yes, well, you put your finger on it there. I mean, the, uh, I founded the college specifically to uh, make a point to have a dedicated higher education institution to the uh, humanities in order to uh, assert, reassert their importance in an age when there's been this massive stampede towards the STEM subjects, quite rightly. I mean, you know, mm. people who are gifted in and, and interested in science, technology, mathematics, we need them. This is a very technological age, no question. But we also need the humanities to temper and contextualize that and to provide what education should be providing, education as opposed to training, pick up your very good point earlier. Uh, and that is because it's for us, it's for the individual, it's for the human being. Because we're not just our career, you know, we're also travelers and lovers and voters and friends and neighbors and readers. And, you know, we, we've got to educate ourselves through all our dimensions. And there's an anecdote I tell people, uh, true, it's a true, true story, which powerfully illustrates the great importance of the humanities to us, not just individually, but also socially. And it's about Steven Weinberg, yeah. Nobel Prize winning physicist. He was one of the guys who did the electroweak uh, unification of the atom. And at the time when Reagan, I don't know whether people on the podcast will remember Ronald Reagan and the Star Wars initiative, mm. put anti-ballistic uh, missiles up in space okay, to interdict anything coming from the Soviet Union. And Stephen Weinberg said, it doesn't bother me that President Reagan doesn't know science, but it does bother me that he doesn't seem to know any philosophy or history. Because if he did know those things, he would not dream of escalating the arms race like this. Right. And I mean, that is such a powerful point coming from a scientist who recognized that science doesn't happen in, in, a, in a vacuum. It happens in a social context, international context, personal human context. 
and that we need to see things in the round and to be able to, to uh, contextualize them properly. And if you think, I mean, just you can ask yourself the following question. How the hell did uh, people think that uh, an education in the classics, Latin and Greek, fitted you to run a huge empire, okay? Because this is what they did with young Brits. They taught them read Latin and Greek, and then they sent them out mm. to run Burma and Australia and places like that, okay? Mm. What's going on there, okay? Answer, when you study the classics, you're studying humanities. And what you're studying is political theory, moral philosophy, history, history of war, legislation, uh, great examples of statesmen. I mean, you just, you're studying the range. It's you know, a microcosm it, of the whole of human experience, isn't it? Exactly. It's exactly. It distills it. And if you're an attentive reader, and if you get engaged in, in discussions and conversations about this, you're going to, you know, it's going to, it's going to turn you on. It's, it's, I say to people, it's like walking down a street and not knowing anything about the houses and the people who live there on either side. But if you do know about them, if you know their personal stories and what's happening with them and what they did, and this poet lived there and that composer lived there, and this couple are having a nervous breakdown and that couple are getting divorced and this couple are just about to have a baby, suddenly the street bursts into life like a great theater. And this is what knowing the humanities is like, because the world just turns on in color and you begin to see things and understand things wonderfully uh, and, and much more richly than if you, if you only know one thing. Hmm. We, we have a lot of problems in our society and with education. One, one problem that I suppose is worrying is the hyper-specialisation of all the disciplines that we have these days. I've, I've been reading a little bit, a little bit more deeply than I previously had, uh, about the French philosopher and uh, pioneer of sociology, Auguste Comte. You know, he was very worried about some of these issues 200 years ago. You know, even then, you know, we were starting to see this kind of specialisation of the sciences. Uh, there was already this feeling that nobody could know, even in, a even in an overview way, nobody could know about all the sciences and the range of human knowledge that had developed as it became fragmented and specialised. Of course, he had a huge project of, of trying to teach uh, just that, you know, he produced a whole set of volumes, I think what, maybe, I can't remember how many volumes it was now, but in the 1830s and 1840s, just a whole series of volumes to give a sort of overview of you know, human knowledge at the time. So that was available. Now, Comte went a bit, a little bit peculiar as he got older. I'm not going to uh, suggest that that's going to happen to you, Anthony, but, but, it, but it seems that your project today is a little bit like Comte's project back then, and that it's a very you know, necessary project to be able to give you know, some kind of overview. You know, your, your new book alone does that, you know, it's topic science, history, you know, the mind, which, which you kind of got back to, though I never got you back to it. But, you know, is that the kind of ambition that you see, you know, that you can use your position you know, as a writer and a very successful writer to you know, provide those opportunities to a, you know, to a wide population to, to get that sort of general idea of the scope of our knowledge? Yes, now, I'm with you, by the way, on, on the ageing, Comte. He did with his 
temple of humanity and so on. But the earlier Comte is a very, very valuable contributor. And by the way, hugely admired by G.H. Lewis, author of the biographical history of philosophy, who ends the history of philosophy with Comte, because he says that Comte has introduced positive knowledge. You know, the Comte on positivism is a a really interesting phenomenon in the 19th century. But look, what Comte was doing uh, is um, part of a recurrent theme. Hmm. Go back to, in the Renaissance, the, the idea was, the uh, um, sort of image of the Renaissance man or woman was the, you know, the image of a person who had a conspectus view, who could put things in, into context. The uh, encyclopedia of Diderot and d'Alembert in the Enlightenment, the central feature of the Enlightenment project was again comprehension, uh, incomprehensiveness mm-hmm. uh, and getting an overview. Then Comte tried it again in the 19th century. Russell, your namesake, Bertrand, Bertrand Russell. Russell. Yeah. yeah. In the 1890s, uh, uh, he was walking around the Tiergarten in Berlin planning a, a, a great in, a series, encyclopedic series of studies ranging from uh, science and maths on the one side to uh, history and ethics on the other side. In fact, Hegel. Uh, projected the same thing as well, the, the idea. So, you know, that repeatedly that you've had people arguing, uh, pushing for this idea of making a, an overall conspectus view possible. Right. In, this, um, in this book, I'm, I'm urging that that is not merely desirable, but necessary, that, that in order to be a really good participant, a really good citizen, of the world and of one's own society, one really does need to have what I describe as a kind of intelligent overview. I don't just mean, you know, a lot, a lot of people come up with half-baked, uh, um, to sort of, n- you know, knowing too little is, is dangerous kind of uh, situation. You well, know, we all get can, peculiar emails. I'm sure you get a lot more than I do, but I get peculiar emails from people with their, their theories. Yes, I do indeed. Yeah, they you know, they used to be purple ink letters, didn't they? And now, <laughs> now you can't see the colour of the ink on the email. Mm. But look, you're dead right. So this this idea of an intelligent, and this is why I think that our educational process should be one which sets people up to be able to do this, to mm. give them that kind of generalised literacy. It's really important, and and in fact, what one can almost, as it were, uh, convince people with the following consideration. The internet provides us at the speed of light, the press of a button with pretty well any data we want. But data is not knowledge until you organize it, put it into patterns, arrange it. But knowledge is not the final step either. It's the what we it's understanding, it's evaluating that knowledge, knowing how to use it, knowing what it's worth. And all this is uh, a function of being able to be reflective and, and critical. Now, it's become such a cliche, critical thinking. You know, that phrase is such a cliche that it no longer has the bite it should have. But my word, it it is so important to be informed and and to be good at evaluating, good at asking sharp questions about what you meet with. Because the internet, you remember, Russell, when it all started, we thought, wow, this is going to be fantastic, a great agora of debate, a great democracy of ideas and opinion. And of course, what it turned into, like that, was it? it's turned into the biggest lavatory war in history and everybody's writing their rubbish and falsehoods and lies and everything on it. It's just too horrible for words. Therefore, we've got to equip our students to know how to navigate that and to do it with clarity, steady eye. And, and, you know, to have that clarity in a steady eye, you've got to know stuff. You've, you've got to have an overview. 
And this is why I think it's more important than ever that the great project of the encyclopedists and Hegel and Comte and Russell mm. and all those mm. people who thought, let's get an overview. So your specialism, your expertise has a context. I think that is so vital. Yes, more vital we, than ever. No, I was just going to say, we really need people like you because to some extent, it seems education systems now letting us down, you know, as it makes itself more and more focused on training, uh, whether as a result of decisions being made by academic administrators themselves freely, or whether it's as a result of government priorities or a mixture or whatever it is, you know, we, we tend to see those sorts of pressures and those sorts of changes. Mm. And I mean, to me, an initiative like the New College of Humanities, that seems a wonderful initiative and, you know, I, I, I applaud you and I applaud you know, that initiative, but but increasingly we seem to depend upon people like you to be the you know the Diderot and the D'Alembert and the Comte you know of our generation because it's not necessarily being provided you know where it should be. I mean, well, you know, it's 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 going to get uh, um, very very. I I I think it. I, I, I'm an optimist, okay? Mm. So, so what I'm just about to say is the kind of thing I don't like saying, which is why mm. I'm, it's kind of sticking in, in my throat to say, but some of the developments which are, are very, very challenging to, to um, the welfare of humankind, especially in AI and especially in the technologies of, of, uh, of brain science in their potential negative applications, they're already with us. You know, the, the, these technologies and their developments are coming at us so fast that they've passed us before we've realized that they're there. And, you know, we've, we've already um, gone well beyond the situation where we could have a, a quiet, serious conversation about how we're going to manage the use of these technologies. I don't know whether you noticed, but at, at a certain point in the book, I put forward uh, what I call Grayling's Law. <laughs> and, and because it's a very terrible law, I've attached my name to this horrible law. And this law says anything that can be done will be done mm. if it brings profit or advantage to somebody, some government, some private industry, some rich individual. Even if you try to outlaw these things, like, for example, genetically um, fiddling with a, a, a fetus in vitro, let's say, you know, a cytoblast, mm, yeah, to produce six or five, uh, you know, super genius. This, these things will happen. Mm. These things will happen, no, despite our very best efforts to stop them. If that kind of thing happened, if rich people could have their, uh, you know, uh, babies genetically engineered to be extremely superior in one way or another, what have we got? We've got Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, two different species of, of uh, humans. AI. AI is already deciding our insurance premiums. It's, it's already diagnosing our illnesses. It's doing a lot of things which are wonderful and very good. I mean, in fact, I would, if I had to have a brain operation, I'd rather an AI system did it. It would do it much more precisely, right. accurately. Mm. Mm. But also, um, you know, it, 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 it's leaving out all those considerations. Like, for example, on the battlefield, an autonomous weapon system is going to have to have a very, very sophisticated AI on it if it can tell the difference between somebody surrendering and somebody just about to throw a hand grenade, yeah. Yeah. Re reading human intentions, or even more so having compassion on, on the battlefield and deciding not to pull the trigger 
in a certain situation. Or um, you know, having made a calculation which on utilitarian grounds would say, fire that missile, even though a lot of collateral damage is going to happen, and being a human being who says, uh, no, I'm, I'm just not going to do that personally. You know, So we're already in that kind of situation where a lot of these decisions have taken themselves without our input to them. And where we are now is we have to have enough understanding of what's going on to, to see whether there's any way we can manage these consequences or even indeed you know claw back a couple of things that we find really aren't acceptable yes the lethal autonomous weapons one is the one that's really scary in this whole field of of artificial intelligence but but even self-driving cars are going to be difficult you know, do, do you swerve to avoid one child and you end up on the pavement and puts you know, a whole bunch of other people at risk? You know, what do you do? Different, different drivers, you know, in the, our current world might make dif different decisions. Um, you know, what sort of decisions does a self-driving car make? You know, how do you design the artificial intelligence that's going to uh, you know, decide whether to swerve, whether to brake, you know, whatever, whatever the possibilities are that are open to the driver? And that, that one, even that simple one. Yeah, currently it seems pretty difficult to resolve. It's interesting, isn't it, how driverless cars have taken over the trolley problem? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We better tell Alison what the trolley problem is in case they don't know it. Uh, do, do you yeah, want to explain you, it quickly? Oh, the trolley problem is, well, you, you, you're in control of a lever and there's a runaway trolley on the railway track. Yeah. And uh, if you pull the lever, it will it will kill one person instead of the six people it's heading towards at the moment. Mm -hmm. So well, what do you do? Well, if you're a straightforward, simple-minded utilitarian, you pull the lever, kill one person to save the six. But what happens if the six are convicted murderers and the, other, mm -hmm. and the one is your mum? You know? <laughs> so mm -hmm. you start to complexify the problem like this, and it just shows you that these decisions are very difficult. Mm -hmm. But you see, in, in the case of, of driverless cars, it's, it's a classic case, this one, really, because it brings up all those issues about accountability and, and what the AI has to be able to do, just as you've described it. But the people who are in favour of it point out the following. You could imagine Newcastle in, uh, in Australia having uh, a, a fleet of driverless taxis. Okay, they're provided by the municipality, so they're, they're pretty cheap. They're cheap because they don't have to pay a driver. They run 24-7, except for when they're charging. They, they've got terrific AI on them, so they've got GPS. They don't bump into one another, or pedestrians, or cyclists. They can see around corners. Uh, they, they, um, operating costs are low because they, they drive you know, well within the speed limit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got an app on your iPhone and you can just summon one anytime, day or night. They're there within a couple of minutes. They're very convenient. So nobody has to have a car or a motorbike. It's, it's just so useful to have all these things. So you don't need street furniture, you know, all, all the traffic lights and the posters and the signposts and everything else, because these things are just driving by, by satellite. So it cleans up the environment. They're electric. The pollution is down. They're convenient. They're cheap. And there are many fewer accidents. Mm. And so the overall benefit is pretty, yeah, it's yeah. pretty obvious, yeah. I suppose. You can add up the overall benefits, but you still have to design the system. You do, you do. And, and, and therefore, it is, you're dead right, it is a matter of, of trade-off here. So we would ask ourselves, uh, trade-off AI, well, we've already accepted AI in so many aspects of our lives. Mm. You know, our air traffic control is, is governed by them. That's driverless aeroplanes, <laughs> effectively, you know, when you think about it. They're, they're being organized by AI. And across the whole range of, of what we do. 
an AI system could teach maths to primary school children much more effectively than a human being can. Interactive AI, you know. So th there are many great applications of it. But we, we've got to be fly, you know, we've got to be good at spotting where things should go wrong and what limits we want to place on them and why, where we want to go a bit more slowly, a bit more cautiously. And all this requires being informed and being good at asking the right kinds of questions. We've been talking about the mind in various ways. So I said we'd come back to the mind, but we have been talking about it in a whole range of ways. What we haven't really talked about, but I find very interesting, and I think you must as well, is that whole question of the brain and the mind and the way they relate to each other. Uh, you know, that's, that's a philosophical problem. It's a scientific problem that's been bubbling away for a long time. And some people perhaps think they've solved the problem, but I think you believe that we haven't solved the problem. Can you talk a little bit about that and the kind of, perhaps going back to those 12 you know, challenges or barriers, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the challenges to solving that kind of problem? Yeah, sure. So, you know, with that, these um, new tools for investigating brain, brain structure, brain function, correlations between activation of structures in the brain and certain kinds of, of cognitive and psychological capacities we have. A lot of advance has been made now with a cognitive neuropsychology. So understanding how vision, hearing, language, emotion is uh, processed in the brain and which structures are correlated. Now notice I'm using the word correlated because you know the causal connection issues is still away from, from being settled. But these correlations have been identified. And uh, um, a lot of people reckon that the first step really, uh, even just understanding cognition, is to get the correlations right, because that will steer us in the right direction once we've got much, much more uh, accurate understanding of microstructure in the brain about how the connector, the, the connections in the brain are underlying all these activities. However, the, the point that, that I make in the book, and, and I'm hoping that it's a point that's going to be sort of picked up and recognized as having some significance, is whereas I think ultimately there's nothing about physics, so I'm, I'm no Cartesian dualist or mm. anything like that, okay? I don't think that a mind can be understood exhaustively in terms just of the brain with which which secretes it or, or, or you know in which it's instantiated because i think a mind is the product of a relationship between a brain and other brains yep. and the environment the social and physical environment around it you cannot in, in a technical philosophy we draw a distinction between what's called narrow content and broad content so we think about uh, could it be possible for somebody to understand the meaning of the word tree um, without ever having seen a tree or encountered one or heard about it or anything else, but just not on the basis of something that might happen in the brain. The answer seems to be no. It seems to be no because it looks as though essentially to individuate between the thought in a brain of a tree as against the thought in the brain of a, of a, a bus, let's say, mm -hmm. that brain has to have encountered trees and buses and be able to distinguish between them. So the, the content of the thought is essentially related to something that the thought refers to outside the brain. Uh, 
And so this idea is that our mental lives, our personalities, our memories, how we behave, how we respond to things, is the result of the way that our brains have interacted with other brains and with the world around it, outside the skull. And therefore, you couldn't exhaustively explain mind, psychology, just by brain science alone. You have to have a knowledge of of human relationships and and of of, uh, how personalities develop out of experiences in childhood and through friendship. And, you know, you've got to have a bigger picture here to understand the nature of mind. So mind is something additional uh, to brain from the point of view of the kinds of things that we need to have in order to understand it. Earlier on, you know, I was... I was comparing you to Compton, we started talking about yeah, the encyclopedists, about D'Alembert and Diderot and, and, and other people who have had these you know, large-scale tasks of communicating knowledge to the public. Uh, I, I, think it, I think you do a little bit more than that. Your, your books communicate knowledge to the public. But at the same time, they, I think, try to make philosophical progress. Right? It, it's, it's two things that you're doing there. And those two things are very difficult to do together. I know that because I've tried that myself. You know, it's something that I try to do. And it's a, it's a real challenge doing that. Uh, just to wrap up, could I, could I get you to talk a little bit about that challenge, uh, if that is the task, and yeah, your own process, how you, you go about trying to, to meet that challenge of making progress while while also being accessible, also communicating knowledge? Well, I I was uh, inspired by a a remark made by William Hazlitt, who started out uh, as a philosopher. In fact, he published a book of of philosophy, a book in, you know, sort of moral psychology, really. Um, And and, and as you would expect, it wasn't even read by the one person who reviewed it, which is fairly standard for, for these things. So he decided that what he was going to do was to try to smuggle his philosophical views out in a way that was palatable to a wider readership. Now, for, for Hazlitt in his day, so we're talking about the first couple of the first two or three decades of the 19th century, any educated person would be interested in, in philosophy and would want to read it, which is why people like Hume and Mill and so on didn't write just for professors of philosophy, but for you know, a, a wider, intelligent, mm. educated readership. And, and to get those ideas out there. Now, you, you, you know that, that if, if one publishes a, a, a paper in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, it's going to have a very, very limited reach. And uh, it's going to be read by people who are looking to disagree with it. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and when mm. you write papers like that, you, you've got to address the literature and, uh, and sh- show that you're conscious of it and bristle it about with footnotes and you know so if if there are any good ideas or good suggestions out there that could be taken up and and discussed there's always the risk that they're going to go down a very narrow tunnel Uh, among a few specialists who really have an interest in that and and you're going to have to be doing it in a way that that sort of befogs it I mean, you know, as, as well as I do, that technical books, technical stuff in philosophy, and we've both written it, <laughs> we've both done it, is full of long words mm-hmm. like marmalade and corrugated iron, you know, it's just really <laughs> it, it, it keeps other people out in a way, that special jargon. 
So what I like to try to do is like to say, look, here, here is something really interesting. This is something we should know about and be thinking about. And, and why not, if you're engaging in the conversation, it's not just simply a matter of passing the baton on or, or just communicating what everybody knows, but have a go, make some suggestions. Very, very early on, the very first book I ever wrote, and for which, by the way, the contract specified that I would get 80% of the film rights, royalties on the film rights, was a book called An Introduction to Philosophical Logic. So <laughs> this is not a book that was going to be made into a movie anytime mm. soon. It always kind of amused me that they offered me 80% of the film. <laughs> but anyway, in, in this book, An Introduction to Philosophical Logic, I really wanted to, to provide a book that I needed when I was a student and it didn't exist. So I thought, well, I've got to write the damn thing. <laughs> in, in order Because I, I wrote it actually while I was doing my doctorate because I needed it and it didn't exist. Oh, okay. So I, mm. I parked the doctorate and wrote that book and then went ahead and did it. But I also thought while I was doing it, I thought, look, you know, I've got to, I've got a, a view about this and I've got a view about that. So I want to smuggle it in. So I say in the introduction of the book, that like Teusa, I fire my arrows from behind the shield of Ajax. Now, Ajax was a mighty warrior in the Trojan War, a huge guy with a huge shield. And Teusa was a, a, a famous archer. And he used to hide behind Ajax's shield, and pop out every now and then and shoot an arrow at the Trojans and then pop back in behind the shield to keep safe. <laughs> so if you put these philosophical ideas into your writing for a general public, like Tusa, you're firing your arrows from behind the shield. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That may be a good place for us to finish, though. We could probably talk for hours more. I know I could. But I'll thank you, Anthony. Um, the book we've been discussing today is The Frontiers of Knowledge, subtitled what we now know about science, history, and the mind from AC Grayling, uh, published by Penguin Random House and in Australia, I think, by Viking. Uh, available from good bookstores. I've seen it available from good bookstores here in Australia. Thank you once again, Anthony. It's wonderful talking to you. And unless you have any last words for us, we, we can end there. <laughs> well, last words are, uh, Russell, to say what a real pleasure to see you and, and to talk to you again. I mean, I, the, the people listening won't know that I can see you, but we're Zooming. <laughs> so it's great to see you looking so fit and well. And uh, I hope that you'll keep safe and well. Great to talk to you too, Anthony. to you.